0: Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness! Here's to high-stakes action, to thrilling moments we can't miss. He turns the game at the buzzer! And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by U2 TV continue on ABC.
1: Get iXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off iXL membership when they sign up today at iXL.com slash audio. Visit iXL.com slash audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price.
0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode, you'll hear Alex Adelman.
2: seven years old and my parents said, Alex, we're going to have Christmas this year. <laughs> and, of course, I went ape shit <laughs> 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 That's the best gift you can give a jewish boy
0: (laughs) that and more but before we start i want to remind you that on january 11th risk is at fontana's for nyc podfest with keith and the girl and the gentleman you just heard in that clip right there so join us on january 11th if you're in new york now here's the show This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Mirror Image, behind me now. They are just discoing the shit out of uh, Jingle Bells here, and (laughs) boy, is it a force to be reckoned with, this song. We might as well surrender, because even if we don't, this song will beat the crap out of all of us with joy and good tidings to you and your ken or kin. But if you have a ken, I mean, good tidings to him, too. What you are listening to now is the fourth of our Christmassy Risks, but it's the first of the two episodes that the two hop ha- <laughs> It's the first one we're bringing you in 2013. I believe you can see that a large part of me is already on vacation. In just a bit, we're going to hear from my dear friend, the brilliant Jude Trader Wolf. But first, a young man that I met at a Risk Live show several months back. I'm backstage as a show's going on, I'm listening to hear the story that someone on stage is telling. And I get this poke on the arm. I look over, there's this young guy. I'm like, what the fuck is he doing backstage? And he just whispers to me, hi, I want to be on this show. (laughs) And now he is. Live at the pit in New York City, this is Alex Edelman with a story we call A Very Kosher Christmas.
2: This is a story. It's not about God. Uh, it's about religion. And, uh, and this is actually a good religion story. If you read Chicken Soup for the Christian Soul, and I have, uh, which is strange given that I'm an Orthodox Jew, uh, <laughs> you will notice that every good story is about spirituality as opposed to organized religion. But this is, I think it's a good story about organized religion. I was raised Orthodox Jewish and modern Orthodox Jewish, as my parents always hasten to point out. I don't know what modern means. I don't think anybody does. But uh, it's defined apart, like, let's put it this way. Like, I've never tried bacon, but I have tried cocaine. So, like, <laughs> I'm a modern person. <laughs> Seems like a weird Rubicon to not cross. But um, <laughs> so I was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home, and, and we had kosher, uh, kosher utensils, two dishwashers. We kept kosher. I prayed three times a day. I wore a yarmulke. And uh, we celebrated all the crappy Jewish holidays. And one day, my parents, uh, mother and my father, they sat us down. I was seven or eight years old. This whole memory is very muddled. Uh, I was seven years old, and my parents said, Alex, AJ, my younger brother, by two years ago, Alex, uh, we're going to have Christmas this year. And of course, I went ape shit. <laughs> That's the best gift you can give a Jewish boy.
3: <laughs>
2: because when 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 Christian holidays started getting fun in the modern times, Jews sort of sought out like the fun in their holidays, but it's it was always half assed. So like there is, like a Jewish colliery for every like fun Christian holiday, but it's sort of like a Diet Coke version. You know what I mean? Like, like you get gifts on like on Hanukkah, but it's not like fun Christmas gifts. They're never like, you know for Hanukkah you get boopcas. Like it's like it's bullshit. But um this is how insulated. This is how insulated we were. My younger brother, five years old, looks at me and goes, "What's Christmas?" And I had read Doctor Seuss. I had heard the legends, so I knew <laughs> what Christmas was. But the reason we were having it, like my father is a strict Jew. He grew up in Boston, and uh, it was hard for him growing up as a Jew in Boston. And you know, the devout who go through difficult times, for them, their faith is either stripped or affirmed. My father is a very devout Jew. And my mother doesn't want to be Jewish. Like, she doesn't want to be Jewish so badly, she's like a natural blonde. Like, she doesn't, she is not, we all had blonde hair as kids, but we've grown into our Jewishness. And um, like, so, what happened was, one of my mother's friends, uh, her name was Kate, and Kate worked at a furniture store. But my mother is one of those people who can make a brick wall tell you their darkest secrets. And she, Kate told her that her entire family had passed away over the course of the last calendar year, and she didn't have anyone to go to for Christmas. And my mother right away went, let's have Christmas. Come to our house for Christmas. So this Orthodox Jewish family was now having Christmas. And it was just such a surreal experience that... Like, Kate comes to our door, this is a frosted blonde woman, and she walks through it, and there's a mezuzah on the door, and that just sort of sums up this entire experience. Like, we had Christmas dinner, but me and my brother wore yarmulke, like, the entire time. There was no ham. Like, that was a very, it was a very Jewish experience, and for my father, this was actually a real struggle. Like, he, he loves being Jewish, but he also loves my mom, and my mom, uh, God. God doesn't defend himself on a day-to-day basis in front of you. So my mom won out. Like, we had all the Christmas things. My father had... Comp- only, the only compromise he was able to have was that the Christmas tree wouldn't be in the house. It would be in the garage. Because he feared from God, I guess. And my mother, who feared for the carpet, um, <laughs> agreed to have this tree in the garage. And... And Kate comes, and it was really sweet, and uh, I think the strangest moment is, uh, Kate says, we have to leave out cookies for Santa Claus. And I looked at my father, and I said, is Santa Claus? And he goes, no. (laughs) He's not real. (laughs) By the way, we have a shitty version of Santa Claus called the Eliyahu Hanavi, but he doesn't leave you presents. He just comes and drinks your wine. That is true. (laughs) Don't know why we thought that'd be fun. But, uh... (laughs) But I say to my father, I go, oh, but you don't tell young children that, right? And he goes, right. And I'm like, okay, we can't tell AJ. It'll crush him. <laughs> he didn't even know who... So um, <laughs> so we go to bed. Uh, I remember hugging Kate before we went up to bed. And I do remember that she was crying, but I wasn't sure why. It was like a very... Uh, looking back. The thing is, my parents don't talk about this moment. Like, I would fucking dine out on this moment forever. Because it's such a quirky... Unusual moment for a religious person to make But my parents like it's sort of receded into the past Like my parents don't even remember most of it They know that it's happened There are pictures Only a couple of pictures My mom used to take a lot of pictures But she only took like two of them This time perhaps fearing that they would like Be used as evidence in some rabbinical court later on <laughs> And <laughs> We go up to bed We get up the next morning We wash our hands As is the Jewish custom from waking up in the morning, we run downstairs, uh, we eat the Hanukkah gelt because that was, that was what was in our stockings. And we had Christmas stockings. I remember this now. We had Christmas stockings. Our names were done in glitter and we kept those stockings for like 10 years. We still have them somewhere probably in a basement. Anyway, um, we go downstairs. We unwrap the presents. This is how long ago it was. Again, I can't put a finger on the ear. We got tape Walkman. And we were fucking thrilled. And the tape that I listened to until the tape wore out was the cast recording of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat starring Donnie Osmond. And I remember, and I went home last week, and I found a picture of me decorating the tree the day after, wearing a coat that I didn't know if it was old or if we had got it as part of our Christmas gifts. But I'm listening to the Walkman, and it's weird, because you're looking at a picture of a small Jew decorating a Christmas tree while listening to an Old Testament musical sung by a Mormon. <laughs> Very strange. So, And I love this, I love this story because um, it's a teachable moment. And I think religion's lost a lot of traction in the last couple of decades because I think religion is very short on those teachable moments. I think God is hot, is heavy on them. You can write chicken soup books about them. But spirituality is special. Religion, much less so. Especially uh, people like modern Orthodox Jews who don't know the definition of their own religion in many ways. They just know someone quantifiably more religious than them is crazy, and anyone less religious than them is Episcopalian. Like, it's, not, it's a very... I'm at the right level, but... So, I go to school that day, and so does my brother because it's a Jewish school. It's a yeshiva, and it's not canceled for Christmas. And we're sitting at the kitchen table that night. My father gets home, and the phone rings. And my father used to do this thing when we were in trouble because the phone was on one side of the kitchen, and we were sitting on the other. And he would pick up the phone, and, uh, and if we were in trouble, he would look over his shoulder. He would, if our name was mentioned on the phone, we would know because he would go, Oh, and then he would turn around and stare at us. So, we're sitting at the table. And my little brother's sitting next to me, and apparently this is what happened. My father tells us to leave the room, and this is what's happened. Um, So the the rabbi has called him, the principal of the school, and he says, uh, I need to talk to you about your son. And my father goes, which one? And I thought it was me, but apparently I checked my parents. It was my younger brother, A.J. And uh, and they said, A.J. has a lying problem, which was true, by the way. Um, (laughs) A.J. has a lying problem. And my, my father said, what do you mean it's a lying problem? He said, well, today, um, someone brought up Christmas in class. And the teacher explained to the children what Christmas was in a very appropriate way. And said, well, of course, in that view you had a Christmas tree. And AJ went, oh, we had a Christmas tree. <laughs> my father is a second generation member of the community. My grandfather, his father built the synagogue Physi- with his hands. And he goes, and I know that you being the son of Julian and you yourself named Eluzer, a devout Jew, would never have a Christmas tree. And he, he said, and my father says, well, um, and he said, and also, they brought up Santa. And, uh, and AJ said, oh, we had Santa. He ate the cookies. <laughs> he didn't really eat the cookies, not really Santa Claus. Um, but just to clear it up. But so, uh, My father explained the situation, he said, he explained Kate, he explained what, and he explained that he thought it would be a good moment for his kids, which I thought was a real strong sign for my father, who had always been reluctant to do it, and the the rabbi says, well, I understand all that, and I don't agree, because it's a very impressionable time for them, and they really need to learn, you know, learn something, and that could really, you're going to give them Christmas and take it away and you're going to introduce a very, you know, exciting holiday and take it away. And I don't think that's a, and I don't think it's a Jewish thing to do. And I don't think it's appropriate. And my father says, well clearly you don't understand the meaning of Christmas. <laughs> All right guys, thanks so much for having me. I'm Alex Edelman.
4: So you're astrologers, are you? Well, what is he then? Hmm? What star sign is he? <laughs> Capricorn? Ah, oh, Capricorn, eh? What are they like? He's the Son of God, our Messiah, King of the Jews. That's Capricorn, is it? Uh, no, 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 that's just
3: him. Oh, I was going to say, otherwise there'd be a lot of them.
4: It's Christmas Eve, and I'm finishing work around 7. I don't usually work this late on Christmas Eve, but it pays time and a half, and nobody else wants these hours, and I really need the money. I'm hanging by the thinnest of financial and emotional threads, and I just have to get through this one more semester after five years of working full-time and going to school full-time, and I'll get money any way I can. I feel... Like what I imagine a marathon runner feels when they're at about mile 20. What I'm told by marathon runners is that at about mile 20, you're so disoriented, your body doesn't tell you that it's hungry or thirsty, like you don't remember to do those things. You have to remind yourself somehow or you'll just collapse. Sort of I'm slogging through and I have absolutely nothing left. Like that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. Now, of course, Christmas comes right after the finals, so I'm exhausted from that. I'm looking forward to one Christmas ritual that's really important to me, and that is the drive home with my sister. We pack up the car with presents and treats and tune the radio to Christmas music only, and it's about a two-hour drive north. Now, my sister is two years younger than I. We were raised almost like twins, because we're from a family of thousands and thousands of children, and we're at the very, very tail end. We had to look out for each other, and we always had to do everything together. We got the same haircut, we wore the same clothes, we slept in the same bed. We were really raised, like, inseparably. At the same time, we don't really know it yet, but we are on very different trajectories of what we want to do with our lives. I've been so focused on school, that's just what I'm focused on, is that's my way out to the next stage of my life. And home is this little farm in a small country town in northern Wisconsin. It's really like a Thomas Kincaid painting. It's beautiful, and you know, the snow falls in all the right spots, and the lights are in the windows, and especially at Christmas, it really is like a painting, but also like a painting. It's completely still, it's the same. It is always exactly the same. The furniture's in the same place, everything looks the same, the conversations are the same. Like, why do you have to live so far from home? Why can't you get a job right here in Berlin? Where were you between the hours of 5 and 7? the other day, I had to talk to your roommate for 20 solid minutes because no one knew where you were, and other kinds of interrogations. That's the first line that when we walk in. And then it gets to the really interesting conversations like, space travel is impossible because there's no atmosphere in space, so the moon landing is a hoax. That's a government plot. And then the civil rights movement is a communist plot. Uh, Really, any kind of big sort of social change is a communist plot. Seatbelts, communist plot. So, in this house, change is the devil. Now, this is a big deal for me because this Christmas, I have to tell my parents my plans for after I graduate in a few months, which... Are that I'm going to Australia to live with my Australian boyfriend that they do not know exists and who will forever after be known as the devil. Now, the thing about change is that you can't really stop change from happening, but you can stop yourself from believing that change is happening. And you can close yourself off to all the emotions that might somehow sneak out and lead right back to having to face some kind of change that you don't really want to believe is happening. There's only one really, truly reliable, surefire, safe and legal way to close off your emotions. And that is a power greater than self. It is a power that is candy. Candy is the greatest, safest legal drug. It stops everything. There's plenty of it. It will always do what you expect it to do. And we were poor, so we got cheap-ass candy in enormous volumes. And we made candy, Rice Krispie Treats with peanut butter and fudge. Every kind of fudge you can imagine. We'd have gummy bears, gummy worms, gumdrops, jelly worms, fruit jellies. Hershey Kisses, Hershey Bars, Hershey Almonds. If I met a man named Hershey, I would have loved and kissed and married him because his name was Hershey. And, of course, Skittles, because when you're really sad, you do need something that tastes like a rainbow. Now, it's Christmas Eve, and my sister and I both know that I'm going to be telling my parents this news. I'm already prepared for what that might be like, because when you tell my mother particularly something she does not want to hear... There are three stages that you have to go through. The first stage is we have to get out the fainting couch so she can do the sort of Blanche DuBois, like, Oh, what I do? I, I don't know. Uh, uh, I'm beside myself. And she'll just faint, and she'll need water and a fan. Then she'll have to say, Well, how will I stand before our Lord Jesus and explain to him that my daughter is a harlot? And then the third stage will be some kind of warning shot of why this really, really is a bad idea. I'm just thinking of you, and I'm just thinking about what is gonna happen to you, and I love you, and that's all I'm really concerned about. So my sister and I usually prepare for this, and we back each other up, we're a tag team. So I'm figuring we'll talk about that in the car, and we hit the road, and we're on the big interstate for about 30 minutes when the snow starts. Now, it's not really snow. It's more like God is hurling white frosted meteors at our windshield and it's just hitting the windshield like bullets just pinging. And we can only see about a foot in front of us. It's just like a darkness and snow and rain and ice coming at us. So we slow down to about five miles an hour, and when we pass under a street light, if we do, we see cars are off the road, this car's crashed into that car on the other side. And my dad did teach us how to drive in a blizzard, I will say that, because blizzards are not a reason for you not to get where you're going in Wisconsin. So this trip on the interstate that should take about 90 minutes takes about three and a half hours. Now, I know that in a rational world, we would turn around because we're really closer to Milwaukee than we are to home or find somewhere to hang out till the storm is over, you know, and just miss Christmas morning. But there is something stronger than the laws of physics, and that is my mother's will. The magnetic force, that is, you will be home on Christmas. We're already in trouble because we're late already because we weren't there on Christmas Eve. It isn't even an option. It's just, we must go. So we keep on going into this storm, and then we get to County Road X. This is where we get off the interstate onto sort of a back road that's one lane each way. And it's a flat stretch of road with just farms on either side and fields. This road, about a half a mile on, we realize, is not really a road. It's actually a river that has been frozen. And now there's, it's, we, sh- we need skis or ice skates to navigate this stretch. And so sometimes we're just spinning our wheels. Sometimes we get a little traction. Sometimes I put my foot on the gas and we just turn around in circles. Now, it looks like the surface of the moon, because it's snowing so hard, that anybody who's been here in the past half an hour, there's no sign of them. So I can't really tell are we headed for a ditch, are we on the road, are we in a field? I actually can't even tell if we are in a field somewhere. And so I'm concentrating on not dying, and my sister says, you never listen to me. I told you that you shouldn't work on Christmas Eve. And I say, well, this is not really the point right now, but uh, I really, really need the money. And she says, well, I know you need the money you'll save money to go to Australia and live with some guy that I don't even know, but you couldn't be bothered to save up money to go to Europe with me. And I say, well, that was over a year ago that you went to Europe, and we talked about it for a year before you went to Europe, and you're still upset about this? I mean, I thought we were past this. And she says, I just wanted one thing that we would do together That would be our special memory, that we would go to Europe together. For the rest of our lives, we might never have a chance to do that. And you couldn't be bothered to do that. And so I had to go with strangers. And I feel so defensive. I start to feel so resentful. She said, that was so selfish. And I say, wait a minute. The reason I didn't go to Europe is because I I had to go to summer school or I would have had to go a full year longer in school. I've already gone five years. That's another year of my life and thousands of dollars that I'm gonna owe in money. I mean, how is that selfish? And she's crying and she says, why don't you wanna stay with me? Why don't you wanna hang out with me? And I don't know what to say. It's not about not wanting to hang out with her. I don't know why she's still so upset about this. And I feel so angry that she brought it up. And I'm so sad that she's in so much pain because of me. And I get it. I, for the first time, I get it that she feels like she's going to fall apart if I leave. And I feel like I'm going to fall apart if I don't. And now we've said everything there is to say. And at this point, whenever we've had this kind of a fight about this topic, one of us walks out. Now, the storm that has been raging outside the car is raging inside the car, and where am I going? We're not, we can't get outside the car, we'll die. We're trapped in this tin can, alone on this, I hope, road. And all you can hear for about an hour, is just silence, the crunch of the tires, the slip, slip, slapping of the windshield wipers, and the beautiful Christmas music about peace on earth playing on the radio. And then my sister makes a really brilliant move. Mm-hmm she pulls this Whitman sampler of a hundred chocolates that we bought for my mother out of the back seat and she rips the wrapping off of it and she opens it up and we just start scarfing down those chocolates and then she gets out the M&M's and we eat the M&M's, the plain ones the almond ones, the peanut ones I don't even know what else we ate we ate almost all the chocolate and we don't talk and we inch along and we get home at probably 3 in the morning now We've been driving for almost eight hours, and my parents are sleeping. They're sleeping. So I said, were well, you worried about us at all? And my mother said, oh, no, no. I just said a rosary and prayed to the baby Jesus, and I knew that you would be fine. Now, how about some rocky road before bed? So we go to bed. Now, my sister and I sleep in the same bed that we grew up sleeping in because it's not the only bed in there. And we wake up a couple hours later because it's Christmas morning, and I feel like I went out and got really drunk on whiskey and gin, which are the worst hangovers I've ever had in my life. And then got into a body slamming contest with a wrestler or something. Every muscle in my body is just throbbing from the tension of driving for almost eight hours without stopping and the tension of not dying and the emotions of the night and the type 2 diabetes that's probably setting in. I'm just a wreck and so is she so we kind of bond over that my sister and i about how terrible we feel try to have fun and we try to get it back now when i go to tell my mother my news there's first the Fanny couch oh what will i do Uh, how will i tell everyone in town because that's another concern was what will everybody say about her that i'm doing something That's not conventional or that she thinks is a little freaky. And then comes the real lowdown, which is how will I stand before our Lord Jesus? And now on Christmas to the baby Jesus that you're going to go live with some Australian dude. You're going to go off and live with this dude. You're not going to sit here and tell me that. How do I stand before our Lord Jesus and tell him my daughter is a harlot? I'm kind of prepared for that. Because I'm training to be a therapist. So she, now she brings in what she thinks is the big guns. She says, whoa, have you thought about this now? You don't really know this dude. You don't really know him. He could be very dysfunctional. And I, I know she read that in a book somewhere about that. And she feels like that's the crowning jewel that she's got. You know, I'm just thinking about you, hon. I'm just thinking about what's going to happen to you. And I could see my sister's getting ready to say something. And so I kind of hold my breath. And she says, It's okay, Mom. She'll just say the rosary and pray to the baby Jesus, and everything will be okay. Now, how about some Rice Krispie Treats with peanut butter and fudge? Because I had that fight with my sister in the car... I really felt very differently about my mother's reaction, about my parents' whole drama, about change. I really understood it in a very different way than I ever did before. Because to me, change was exciting and movement and adventure. And to them, and my sister too, especially in this case, it was the unknown which is a bad thing because you don't know how things are going to turn out. And so to them, change is this very scary path, very dark. And I was able to have empathy, actually, for my parents, which I wouldn't have had if this hadn't happened between my sister and I. And I think about that night often, every Christmas especially, I think about that and I think about something I read that E.L. Doctorow said about writing and about life that there are times when it's like driving on a very treacherous road and all you can see is about a foot in front of you from your headlights of your car. And you have to go very, very slowly. But you can make the whole journey that way.
3: is falling on the ground wind is blowing all around but ever since you came to town it's christmas every day you're the gift that keeps giving you're the song that keeps me singing because when i have you next to me it's christmas Every day, it's Christmas
0: in every way. This is Risk. This delightful ditty comes to us from Latchkey Kid. It's called Christmas Every Day. And we just heard from the lovely and wonderful Jude Trader-Wolf. I had the pleasure of first having Jude as a student at our school, the Story Studio. She's a creative arts therapist. And then I later had the pleasure of helping her out a little bit with her solo show, an amazing show called Crazy Town, My First Psychopath. We love Jude. And hey... Now that we're at the end of the year, isn't it high time we look back and celebrate the very best song of 2013? No other track of the past 12 months will be as beloved as this one once history shakes out. Let's hear it. It's The Postman with The Quick Way. Oh, a trip to the post office is hardly ever quick. Driving there, finding parking, it's a hassle. So do what I do: use stamps.com instead. Stamps.com is the quick and easy way to get postage on demand. Buy and print U.S. postage for any letter or (laughs) package. Using your own computer and printer plus a digital scale. Oh, you'll never waste time at the post office again. I use stamps.com and I'm obviously cool. Use the promo code RISK for a no-risk trial. a $110 bonus offer. That's the digital scale and $55 free poster. Go to stamp! Click the mic on the homepage and type in stamps.com. Enter risk. Nothing quite like it. It's the postman with the quick way. Now, in just a bit, we're going to hear from me at the Risk Live show at the Pit in New York City. But before that, from the NerdMelt Theater in Los Angeles, we're going to hear from the lovely. Danielle Kramer, a writer, producer, the program director at the Nerd Melt, and a lovely person to work with. Here she is now with a story we call To Every Who in Whoville.
3: Standing under the mistletoe, near the warmth of the fire's glow, we have nowhere else to go. It's Christmas every day it's christmas and every way it's christmas every day it's christmas every day it's
5: christmas what i'm going to talk about tonight is how i used to be a grinch I was uh, the worst kind of Grinch. I was a Nine Inch Nails shirt, wearing combat boots stomping, Marlboro Red, smoking, teenage Grinch. And uh, I, I, God, I I was so awful like most of my teenage years, so awful that I can't even look at teenagers anymore these days because they just, they're awful clothes and terrible opinions about music and I can't. (laughs) even hear it because it's just like oh that was me like tenfold it's it's so embarrassing but uh, the worst part about me being a terrible terrible teenager was around Christmas time because my parents loved the holidays so much and I feel so bad because I just wanted everyone to know how stupid I, I thought the holidays were and they made sure that it was magic anyhow you know they just kept going with uh, making the holiday so amazing for us every year. In our house, we celebrate Christmas opening like Santa coming on Christmas Eve. We don't do the, uh, in the morning, everything shows up overnight. Uh, Because in our place in Akron, Ohio, in our neighborhood, there was this Santa sleigh that would come down the street, and it was on Christmas Eve, and we would come out. Mom would be like, oh, do you hear the jingle bells outside? Oh my gosh, girls, I think Santa's here. And we would... We would go out and uh it was Santa like coming down the road in this like brightly lit sleigh and it was uh escorted by a cop car. There weren't any reindeer. <laughs> so uh that did away with some of the magic. But like the coolest part of it was that he had our very first present and it had our name on it and it wasn't just any present it was the present and you sat in his lap and you open up the Barbie Corvette that that you wanted and and mom would take pictures and it really did feel like magic and while mom had us out there my dad would be in he he was in the house and like he was being like Santa's elves putting all of the Christmas presents under the tree and it was this ridiculous mountain of presents my mom just went overboard and he had to dig these out of the basement and the nooks and crannies and closets and he's grumbling because it's like all it's so much work and we're just gonna tear it into everything. It's gonna be over in twenty minutes. uh, and everything says from Santa of course so the parents don't get any thanks, but it was worth it because they were making magic for us. I could see as I got older in the pictures, you know, the the transformation into a Grinch happening. As I got older, you know, I got angrier in the pictures, and I remember one year Santa had uh, black eyebrows, and I was so pissed off that they can't even like have the effort into having a Santa <laughs> with white eyebrows. I started making known how how stupid I thought everything was, and you know, it just pissed me off that my mom had every single knickknack and ornament, and everything on the walls was replaced with like a Santa or a snowman or something It reeked of cinnamon and it, it pissed me off that like we had to listen to terrible christmas music over and over again and you hear it everywhere you go and then mom's still playing it in the car and then she's playing it at home and it's like weird terrible like reba mcintyre christmas and like <laughs> there's this like a very manilow and this weird like Thistle hair, the Christmas bear. Like what the hell is a Thistle hair Christmas bear? Like it's, it was just stuff that you like, it's, they're not classics. And she played them over and over again. And like it, it, it pissed me off that it took so long to get everywhere because everyone's looking at the stupid Christmas lights, you know, driving so slow. And I just, I, I didn't get it. I finally started enjoying Christmas when I got married. I got married early, we were young, we were in our 20s, and you're still kind of figuring everything out for yourself, and uh, wouldn't you know, the man that I married, he's this tattooed punk rock, hail Satan loving boy, and he (laughs) loves Christmas so much, like almost more than my mother. It's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? But we found like what we enjoyed Together, you know, like we really connected on movies and films, so we were, oh, let's watch Home Alone, you know, like, oh, David Bowie does this uh, great cover of, it. you know, we were like, <laughs> like, all the cool stuff about Christmas we were, we were enjoying. We started moving away pretty early. We moved away uh, an hour away, first up to Cleveland, and then we moved six hours away to Chicago, and now we're very far, we're in Los Angeles, so far away from little Akron, Ohio, And whenever you start to move away, you start to miss things, and, you know, you start to miss mom's fudge and grandma's sauerkraut balls, and I found myself, for the holidays, I was craving those things, and I would call up my mom, and I would ask for the recipes, and Whenever we would come back, I would ask her for, you know, uh, can you give me some of those ornaments that we used to put on the tree? And I would put those on my tree, and before you know it, everything in my house was replaced with a Santa or a snowman (laughs) or something (laughs) that reeked of cinnamon. And I was the one that was driving too slow uh, looking at Christmas lights. And... I realized that it you know it, that that feeling that 's all that my parents wanted me to feel you know it felt so good, and you just remember the good times the memories that you had, and that 's what they were giving me and it felt really good, but I also felt so bad because I didn't let them give it to me. I had to find it on my own, you know, but I understand now. Being young and being a teenager, we didn't understand tradition because we didn't want for anything yet. We had all of the presents, and we had all of our family there, and it was like looking back in in the pictures, you see everything's kind of the same. You have the same tree. You have the same ornaments. Everyone is there at the same time, and it's the same menu, and uh, the only thing that you notice that starts to change is the people, and people start getting older, and Uh, You start losing people, and that's when tradition and memory suddenly become very, very important. My grandpa, every Christmas morning, we would go over there, and he would play Santa Claus. He would put on the Santa hat. He would hand out presents to all the kids, and he was so great at it. You could tell it made him so happy, and he teased all, all the kids, and we had a great time. And When I was 11, he passed away. When you have Christmas and you have the Santa hat, you just remember that Grandpa isn't there to pass out the presents anymore, and that's when tradition can be really hard. But my dad, it was his father, he knew that that tradition was really important. It was hard but he was brave and courageous, and he put on the Santa hat, and he passed out the presents that year, and we all cried our eyes out, because it was really sad. And, you know, it's like it's not it's not a fun thing, but over the years, you know, you, the, the family grows, and Santa was dad, and it became fun again, and uh, we could all just look back and remember, you know, Grandpa used to do this too. And um, it was great to have that memory and that tradition. Last year, my dad passed away and so again we find ourselves with that Santa hat and My sisters and I we had to be brave and strong and everyone cried their eyes out But we put on the Santa hat and we pass out the presents and you know It's really hard, but I'm so thankful that we still have that tradition and our family is going to continue to grow and We're going to have kids and those kids are going to be really grateful that we could keep that tradition up for them, or they will be little shits and be little (laughs) Grinches, and they're not going to appreciate it, but that's fine, as long as, you know, it's like, I was a Grinch, and I I was terrible, and for as hard as I hated on Christmas, I came out in the end loving it that much more, so I have faith in the next generation, but yeah, I just wanted to say thank you to my mom and dad for all those really great memories, and for keeping up those traditions, and I am so thankful now for the holidays because it gives me so much to look forward to and coming home, so that's it. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas, everybody.
0: My parents had a love affair with old things. Our stereo was this refurbished Victrola that you actually had to, like, wind up with a crank. And we had this gigantic tent that we'd go tenting in every summer. And my dad would tell us, you know, this just might possibly be have belonged to a sultan in the days of the Arabian Nights. And my mom, she liked dressing up us five children, a little house on the prairie style, (laughs) and having family portraits taken in sepia tone. And she'd tell us, now kids, don't smile. Maybe pretend someone just died. They weren't pretentious about any of this. They were just being creative. And my father once said, Kev, we live in a world of wonders. It's just that to him, the most wondrous things are things that come from like eons ago. And no occasion was more loaded with opportunities to do things the old fashioned way (laughs) then christmas victorian era tree ornaments and gregorian chant for the feast of advent and and our real american christmas tree hunt in december of 1970 my father was watching a charlie brown christmas On TV when he got this idea if you've seen the special you might recall that Charlie Brown has this opinion that metal trees are kind of indicative of a culture that is becoming too modern and commercial whereas real trees are that old-fashioned essence of what the holiday is really about well my mom and dad they never had a metal tree but my dad that night he got the idea to take charlie's way of thinking just a little bit further that night he said to my mom look carol the old way to do things is not to go to some parking lot and buy a tree we should journey out into the american wilderness to find the right tree now, my mom wondered just where exactly in the American wilderness he meant. Well, we lived in Ohio, so he said, Indiana. <laughs> the next day, they did a little research and quickly found out that to go out into the American wilderness and chop down a tree is a federal
3: crime. <laughs>
0: but. Dad did learn of a particular stretch of dozens and dozens of acres of this farmland where this farmer way out in rural Indiana would sell you one of his trees that you could chop down yourself. And because it was an entire two and a half hour drive from our home, Dad figured, well now that is like a journey into the heartland. (laughs) And thus was begun the most beloved tradition of my childhood, the annual Allison family Christmas tree hunt. And nowadays when this time of year rolls around, everyone in the family can agree on one thing. family Christmas tree hunt that happened from 1970 to 1995 was the event during which our best memories took place. The tree hunt now belongs to the world of wonders. It is something we cherish from days gone by. Here's how it worked. See, we were also a very Catholic family, and Mom and Dad wanted us to remember that, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season. So on the Saturday that we'd go out on the tree hunt, Dad would invite a priest over that morning to say the first half of a mass in our living room. Actually, it was more like half half mass and half record listening party, because Dad would insist that after every reading from the Bible, we would listen to an aria from Handel's Messiah on the old Victrola. And so that made it a rather long affair. And he'd make sure that all the Bible readings had something to do with, say, trees or wilderness, or journeys that took, you know, at least two and a half hours. And after the first half of the Mass, we'd all load into the old orange VW van, and we'd start the carol singing, and we'd make out for the territories. Now, for some reason, Dad did think that it was a good idea that once we brought the tree home that evening, then we'd finish the mass. At this point, you know, we're all exhausted and weather-beaten, and all as kids, we just wanted to play our epic games of blind man's bluff down in the basement at that point. I'm not sure exactly why he did it that way, splitting the mass in half, but it did give my mom the opportunity to say all throughout the day, now behave we are in the middle of a
3: match.
0: (laughs) And of course, it also meant that this poor priest friend had to kind of tag along with us awkwardly the entire day. But mom and dad had lots of Catholic friends. So year after year, they would invite yet another family to come join us so that by the late 70s, There were so many people making this pilgrimage that it was like a giant Catholic convoy into Indiana. We could not fit everyone in the house at one point. And another traditional element of the whole thing was, for some reason, my dad always underestimated the size of the tree. So he'd bring the tree home and we could not fit the tree into the house either. He'd have to cut off about the top six feet to kind of just wedge it into the living room. We could never have an angel or a star on top because it would just like kind of look like it was heading into the second floor of the house and maybe ended somewhere up there the branches were so ungainly that they would end up kind of reaching into the hallways, like out of the living room. And it was really hard to like make it look like there were a lot of presents under the tree because the tree was just in more rooms than one. (laughs) But my family has never stopped boasting that those tree hunt days were the greatest of days. And a lot happened. One year, one of the boys, got lost in those woods in the forest for hours on end and it created a complete meltdown a complete family freakout. but when we gather to talk about it these days none of us can remember if it was peter or david or me and then another of the years one of the girls was walking along like an ice pond and fell into a hole and almost started to drown. But when we remember it, we always have these arguments. We can't remember if it was Maria or Rebecca or me. Another year, I do remember that the giant tree that we were bringing home fell off the Orange VW van right into oncoming traffic. And it came just short of creating a Final Destination style (laughs) massacre. And that is the one where we argue, well, no, no, no. That wasn't our van. That was the priest that was tagging along with us that year. And every year, we think back on the tree hunt, and there's one word that you are guaranteed you will hear when we're discussing it. And that is the verb, shat. Uh, Every year, my sister Maria will say, oh, gosh, those were such great days. I'll always remember. One year on the car ride up, Becca shat on mom's lap. We'll all laugh and Peter will say, yeah, those those are unforgettable days. But surely surely it was me that shat on David's lap. And mom will say, Oh my gosh, I'll never forget. Yeah. But wasn't it Peter that shat on dad's lap? And all around the table we'll go, trying to figure it out, only agreeing that, you know, one of those years, or some of those years, or all of those years, one of us, or some of us, or all of us, (laughs) shat in each other's
3: laps.
0: (laughs) Well, nowadays my parents are in their late 70s, and so they themselves have become old friends. Things that the family loves. And of course, they've moved into a condo with a small living room and a metal tree. And when we gather around it, we all give thanks for the memories. Thank you. all for this week folks this is the garlands behind me now don't forget if you uh regret not getting someone a gift on time this year there are those gift certificates at the storystudio.org, including those one-on-one sessions over skype that people do with me the coaching storytelling training i love those sessions and the people who take those sessions love those sessions so keep that in mind as something to do in the new year. Either storytelling coaching with me or in a group workshop. Look for us at thestorystudio.org. The next Risk live shows are January 11th at Fontana's for NYC Podfest. Then later in January on the 23rd, there are live shows at The Pit in New York and at Nerdmelt. In Los Angeles to find out more about our live shows, just go to risk-show.com slash tour and follow us. Join the conversation on Twitter and Facebook. We're at risk show on Twitter. I'm at the Kevin Allison. We always welcome your story pitches to see if you'd like to share the stories from your own life with us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Remember, we're a Maximum Fun podcast, and it is listener support that keeps risk running. If you'd like to help out there, just go to MaximumFun.org donate. And remember to earmark your contribution for risk. Finally, happy holidays, everyone. Merry Christmas. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
3: To the post office is hardly ever quick.
0: Driving there, finding
3: parking, it's a hassle. So do what I do, use stamps.com instead.